Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Disenfranchised. We are a podcast all about those franchises of one. Yes, those films that fancied themselves full-fledged franchises before falling flat on their face after the first film. My name is Stephen Foxworthy. I am one of your hosts. And joining me today uh, with the Derringer hidden inside his sleeve, it's my co-host, Brett Wright. Hi, Brett. Hi, Stephen. How's it going, buddy? Uh, it's going all right, man. I, I got like $3,000 more to get to make this poker tournament. And like, I don't know where I'm going to find it. Uh, you know, I, I hear there's money to be had from all those people uh, that owe you money over the years. Yeah, I expect them to screw me over, though. I'm not going to be honest. <laughs> well, if they're anything like the people in this movie, that's probably actually what's going to happen. Uh, what movie are we talking about today, Brett? We are talking about the Richard Donner film, Maverick. Maverick. Yes, written by William Goldman, directed by Richard Donner, starring Mel Gibson, Jodie Foster, James Garner, Graham Greene, the great Graham Greene, speaking of great, Alfred Molina, and James Coburn as well. Really, really dynamite cast in this movie. Yeah, yeah I, I had forgotten how, how uh, kind of stacked the cast is. And we will, believe me, we will get into it for sure. Um, but first, uh, this movie, based on uh, a 1960s television show, is that correct, Brett? That is correct. Um, I only ever watched it in passing uh, because my grandfather watched it religiously all the time on the AMC Western, old school Western channel. Okay. They showed Westerns all day. Um so I, point of order, I should say, it ran from 1957 to 1962, so late yeah. 50s, early 60s. Okay, um, but yeah, so I, I saw episodes of it in passing um, in my in my teenage years, I think. Um, okay, mostly. so so I'm familiar with the show for the most part, mm -hmm. um, but uh, I don't I don't think it the character in the show is not really similar to the character in the movie. Uh, I wouldn't assume so based simply on uh, a number of factors. Uh, for example, I think the character in the show had a brother. Mm. Is, is that correct? Named Bart Maverick. I think so. So it was actually about uh, a pair of brothers rather than just about um, one dude, uh, okay. which I mean, for me, that's that's where the sequel goes. You you introduce his brother. Uh, there was also a character played by uh, future James Bond, Roger Moore, uh, and future this. Or I guess he probably would have been the saint around that time. Uh, Roger Moore uh, called Beauregard Maverick, who was their British cousin. Interesting. <laughs> right, right. So there was like a whole extended Maverick family uh, that we really don't get. I guess we might kind of sort of get a little glimpse of it there toward the end. Uh, in fact, you might even see this movie potentially as a continuation of the television show if you're so inclined to do so. Yeah, if you if you maybe think that like the original Maverick changed his name to his last name to Cooper or something. Yeah. Well, and I mean, given I mean, given kind of the the nature of that character, it would not be outside the realm of possibility. Yeah, yeah. The, I get, again, that's probably where the sequel goes. Lots sure. of revela revelations about the family history. Sure, and I mean we are we are kind of getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, slightly. Um, when did you first see this movie, though, Brett? Nineteen ninety four is Maverick. Oh God, I th this this is one of those movies 
that I grew up watching constantly. I don't know why. Um, like it doesn't really like when you know you know me, the viewers, you know, know what I'm into. Mm-hmm. Um, this doesn't really vibe with like outside of like westerns. I'm into westerns. Um, okay. But like it doesn't really vibe in any other way with stuff I'm into. But man, I watched the hell out of this movie when I was a kid. I I'm, you know, I'm watching it. I haven't watched it in years. And, you know, I'm watching it the other night and I'm just like, yeah, I remember this part. Yeah, I remember that part. Oh, I remember what this guy's gonna say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and like just all comes flooding just back. All in comes flooding back. Yeah. Kind of like me and three musketeers. Yeah. I, I exactly like that. It, yeah, like the yeah, just like it's, this movie's great. Honestly, I I've missed this movie. Wow, I, I love this movie. I'd forgotten how much I love this movie. Wow, love this movie. Okay, yeah. Yeah. um, I uh, I saw this actually was one of the first movies I ever saw in a drive-in movie theater. Oh wow, uh, it was probably about a month shy of my eleventh birthday, and I went with my cousin and his parents, my aunt and uncle. Uh, to go see the Flintstones in the drive-in, which actually came out the week after Maverick. So I probably saw it a few weeks after that because I distinctly remember there was another theater showing or another screen showing City Slickers 2, uh, okay. which didn't come out until June, whereas this movie came out in May. So it was probably like a month after um, when I finally did get around to seeing it. But um, uh, it was it was a... a, a uh, one, the, the double bill was Flintstones and Maverick. Uh, and then at the end of Maverick, you got Flintstones again. So we didn't stay for the second showing of Flintstones, but we did stay for Maverick because my aunt and uncle wanted to see it. I, at the time, was really not into Westerns. Uh, Westerns still not really my thing. There are a few Westerns I really like, but by and large would not consider myself a fan of the Western just as a general rule. Um, that's more my dad's thing. My dad's really into Westerns. I kind of never was. Um, but, uh, I remember like kind of my aunt and uncle really enjoying this movie and really laughing. I probably saw it on TV maybe four or five years later and went, okay, this isn't bad. Uh, but I was more into the poker tournament of it all than I was the Western of it all. Like this is a movie that made me feel like I wanted to play poker. Yeah, I remember that feeling too. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, if, as a uh, as a kid who grew up in a fairly conservative uh, Christian home, uh, where the only card games we played were solitaire, uh, and my parents would occasionally play like euchre, maybe Uno or Skitbo or something like that. Um, poker was kind of like the forbidden the forbidden game, which of course made it all the more attractive and all the more appealing to a you know little ten year old me. Sure, of course. Um... I didn't. I didn't know you, you grew up in a conservative household, Stephen. I didn't. It's come up a time or two. Has it? it? Has it? Has yeah. Are most you sure? Recent, most recently on our shocker episode, actually. Yeah. I. All right, if you say so. <laughs> in fact, I think if you go back to uh, some of our very early episodes, you'll you'll see that that is in fact always been the case. I, how have I not known this? I, all right. You but really anyway, got to start listening to these episodes I, as, you, as I, you edit them together, man. I guess I do. That's weird. So anyway, um, yeah, no, like I I like Westerns in so much as like I like spaghetti Westerns. I like the stylized Western. I like, you know, this movie or uh, Quick and the Dead. 
love Quick and the Dead. Quick and the Dead's a, an amazing movie. Um, mo- movies like that. Um, for for you video game fans out there, I love like Red Dead Redemption and Red Dead Revolver, especially the original one that a lot of people never played. Go play that; it's really good. Um, like yeah, so the over the top westerns. I you know it, it, I don't I don't really. So you're not a big fan of like The Searchers or uh, Clint Eastwood's Man with No Name? I just, yeah, I was about to say that. Like, please don't crucify me. But like the Clint Eastwood westerns, not really my thing. Because those are spaghetti westerns. Those are incredibly stylized westerns. They are, but I don't know. I'm, I guess I'm picky about it. I don't really know. Um, whatever. I, I like what I like. Leave me alone. That's hey. That's fine. That you like what you like, man. That's fine. And then, like I, but like I said, I'm not what you would call a fan of westerns in general. So um, the fact that you know I get some enjoyment out of this movie is uh, really something. But again, it's more the elements that are completely unlike westerns and more like you know poker tournament movies. That probably that is probably the most fun part of this movie. Is, oh, is the poker tournament. Absolutely, and the whole time when they're doing like the western stuff, where he's like chasing down the stagecoach or trying to keep it from going off the cliff or whatever like i'm just like okay can we can we play poker now <laughs> just get, get back to the poker please can we can we can we can we go back to playing cards please like that's that's the part where i'm having the most fun is when they're on the riverboat and clint black's getting chucked off the side of the boat and <laughs> Waylon jennings and his wife are arguing like that's the part i'm having a good time about um also the- all those freaking cameos in this movie the cra- yeah, the crazy characters on the riverboat, just like a cavalcade of like weird characters, all played by like country singers. Oh, really? I did not know that. Yeah, that like they're all played like Clint Black, Waylon Jennings. Uh, there's there's others here. If I knew more about my grandmother was a big fan of country music, and so the that I that which I know about country music, I know from my grandmother. Uh, but I also know that my grandmother hated. Garth Brooks, who was like the quintessential country singer for a while. Sure. Um, but Clint Black plays the sweet-faced gambler who gets chucked off the boat for cheating. Um, you've got, let me see here, Hal Ketchum, who plays one of the bank robbers. Waylon Jennings, I know, is the guy who has the concealed gun. Uh, his wife is played by Kathy Matea, who I think is also a, uh, a country singer. Um, Corey Feldman is apparently one of the bank robbers. He is. I thought that was him. He's yeah. on screen so little. Uh, Margot Margot Kidder is one of the um, one of the women in the uh, uh, who who get uh, assaulted by the the uh, the Native American or the the people who are disguising themselves as Native Americans. The the only other women besides Jodie Foster in this movie. Ah yes. <laughs> Now, now you've placed it. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, let me see here. You've also got uh, Reba McIntyre plays a spectator. I'm guessing on the riverboat. Uh, Danny Glover is probably the best cameo in this movie. Uh, plays uh, the 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 primary bank robber. He and Mel Gibson just stare at each other for a solid like minute and a half, going, "No, wait, no, no." Yeah, and which the bank and says he's getting too old for this shit, and I cheer. Which might be that might be a reference lost on most people nowadays, but at the nowadays, time, yeah, height of hilarity, I'm sure. Absolutely, and I mean it's Richard Donner who directed all four of those movies. That's like one of those single director franchises that honestly just don't happen a lot anymore. 
Uh, but Richard Donner directed all those movies. Mel Gibson and Danny Glover starred in all of those movies. So you get a Richard Donner movie with Mel Gibson and Danny Glover's not in it kind of feels wrong. So you put Danny Glover in that small little role and it's perfect. It, it just works really well. Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely the best cameo. Alice Cooper apparently had a cameo that got cut from the movie. He played the town drunk in one scene. Okay. Uh, I mean, there's there's all uh, like Linda Hunt had a cameo that got deleted. Like there's there's a bunch of a bunch of people. Uh, Richard Donner's wife plays the uh, uh, the the maid at the uh, at the bathhouse, Mrs. D. Mrs. Donner, Mrs. D. Oh, I almost forgot about that other woman besides Jodie Foster. So they're okay. Yeah. There's now, three. There, there are a few. A couple. Not many. But, <laughs> uh, but let's be honest. It's it's mostly it's mostly Jodie Foster. Yeah, I, I just remember thinking at the end of the movie, like, how many other women have been in this movie? And I, I mean, just... this movie kind of it, it's pitched in in such a way because Mel, Mel Gibson gets to be chauvinistic. Um, he gets to say racist stuff like jokingly i'm like this movie just knowing what we know now about mel gibson <laughs> like this movie ugh. yeah I mean, like you can tell he's having fun but you're like how much fun is he really having here because i mean that there are times where this movie does some says some really racist things well at the same time does occasionally like play against that stereotype like a lot, a lot of, a lot of, uh, what, what was his name? Joseph? Uh, yeah. Graham, Graham, yeah. Green, Graham Green's character, yeah. Joseph. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of the stuff that he says is very much like, okay, this, I mean, this is good commentary on the racism, but like, mm-hmm. but then you got Mel Gibson on the other side of that. Yeah. Uh, just, on the, just moments before. Just... Yeah. And then you've got like when he first meets Alfred Molina and the, the narration says something about a guy who smells like something and something else. Oh, oh, and refried beans. Cause you get it. He's, he's Mexican. Right. Yeah. And then they call him the Spaniard, the whole movie. And you're just like, okay, <laughs> like, which is it? Yeah. Like, look, like, look guys, I get it. That's probably what they would have called that guy during this time period. But maybe, you know, maybe you don't gotta be so historically accurate when the rest of this movie isn't really historically accurate. It's not his character has a name too, and they only use it once. And when they do use it, you're like, "Wait, who are they talking about again?" Because his name is Angel, and James uh, James Garner uh, Marshall Zane Cooper uh, is the only one that actually calls him Angel. And it's in one. Of, it's in the final tournament where it's Maverick and the Commodore and Angel. And he leans over to Jodie Foster and he says, Angel's got, or is the, the Commodore's got four eights. Angel has, what did he say? Straight uh, flush. Straight flush. And I don't know what the hell Maverick has. Like, that's the only time we hear that character's name in the whole movie. Is right there toward the end of it. And you're just like, okay, I guess. Yeah, there's there's some there's some inconsistencies in this movie that I definitely noticed. And, For sure. Uh, yeah, that's one it, of them. And it's it's one of those things that it gets worse as the movie goes. Like the more you start paying attention to it, you're like, okay, okay. Yeah, really don't don't pay attention to this movie so much. Just kind of go along for the ride. Well, and it, it, in my opinion, it all kind of unravels at the end. But we'll, I'm sure we'll get into all of that as we get into our discussion today. Um, sure. Speaking of which. 
we do need to have a conversation about what this movie is about. And to do that, we need to consult our good friend, the coin of justice, because that's right. It's time for the plot in 60 seconds. Uh, this is the part of the show when one of us at the behest of the coin of justice must recount the plot of this film, 1994's Maverick in 60 seconds or less, or your podcast is free. Brett, call it in the air. Tails. And it is heads. Hey, look at that. Which means that it falls to you to recount the plot of this movie that you love so well in 60 seconds or less. I will get 60 seconds on the clock, and I am ready when you are, sir. All right, man, do it up. Your time starts now. All right, so we open in Media Res where uh, Brett Mavic is being hung by a group of ne'er-do-wells, and we get some narration about how we got there. Um, turns out he's he's uh, $3,000 short of making it to a major poker tournament, and so through a bunch of random shenanigans and various events where he has to visit some old friends to maybe collect on some debts to recoup that $3,000, uh, he makes some people mad, he meets some interesting characters, 30 seconds. He meets uh, Jodie Foster, who uh, they have an antagonistic relationship, but maybe a loving one at the end. We don't really know for sure. Um, And he makes it to the tournament somehow. He wins it because magic. Uh, Turns out one of the guys he met was actually his dad. Were they planning this the whole time? I don't really know. Maybe they'd explain that in a sequel. Um, And that's it. Then he has a bath. And that is time. Uh, I mean, that's most of it. That's yeah, most try, of it. That's, I try not. A... I try not to get bogged down in the minutia of that one. I mean, sure, it shows. It shows. Yeah. Uh, some things happen, and he meets some people, and he does some stuff, and then he's there. And <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's basically what happens. Like, I mean, he it, it's very uh, vignette for the first half of the movie before he actually gets on the riverboat. It does seem very vignette. It's, and then it's this a, happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. It's it's a Western road trip movie. Kind of. Think about it. Yeah. yeah. He has to go from one side of the country to the other, collecting on, hopefully collecting on his debts and making it to the poker tournament. Right. And uh, he doesn't, and I think he ends up collecting on one, one of them. Yeah. And even then he sort of gets swindled, kind of. Kind of, sort of, yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, and of course, at uh did you did you say who ended up with the money at the end i don't remember you saying no i didn't i totally forgot about that <laughs> in and classic that's... brett does plot in 60 seconds style <laughs> i've forgotten a whole section important part of the movie so i'm just going to get into it right now like the ending i think is where this thing unravels because it's too many double crosses happening in such a very short amount of time um so he wins the tournament he gets the money and then you find out that James Garner is really a bad guy the whole time. And he pulls the gun and steals the money from everybody on a boat where only he's allowed to have guns because he's security. And you've already seen him like throw everyone who has guns off the boat already. Uh, but then you find out that like Angel's got one up his sleeve for most of the tournament. And then like a couple other, like all of his guys have guns. And it's been because everyone's kind of in on it together except for Maverick for some reason like Maverick and I think Annabelle Jodie Foster's character are the only two that aren't really in on it that's what I that's the one thing in in this because I I do agree with you I think this is where it unravels because 
it doesn't make any sense. Like none of it makes any sense. It's just it's, exactly. It, it feels like just a string of Deus Ex Machina's just over and over and over again. Yeah, it's one after the. It really is one after the other. So then, um, they like the Commodore played by Jane, played by the unparalleled James Coburn. Uh, tries to shoot him. Maverick stops him from shooting him, saying, "I'm not going to press charges." He saved my life. Blah blah blah. Um, and then we come up later with the Commodore meeting James Garner in the woods, and apparently they've been in on it the whole time. And it's alluded to by James Garner that he didn't know that Alfred Molina's character Angel had also been in on it the whole time. Uh, and co- the Commodore is like, "Well, you know, I was just covering my bases or whatever." Um, which, okay, sure. Then Maverick shows up, holds them both at gunpoint, takes their guns, takes the money and throws what turns out to be an empty gun up in the air, which apparently he thought was loaded because he makes some mention of, of, uh, James Garner shooting the Commodore in the back. But when he does, when the Commodore does try to shoot James Garner, the gun is empty, like completely empty which doesn't make any sense to me. So I don't know. Was it subterfuge? Was it bad writing? Who knows? <laughs> Maybe both. <laughs> Maybe both. Um, but he, uh, so the, so he leaves the two of them in the woods. He's in a bathhouse getting a bath uh, with the money sitting, uh, you know, like he's, he's sitting away from the money. His, his gun is very well established sitting eight feet away from him. Uh, and so James Garner sneaks up on him and goes to steal the money. And that's when we find out that James Garner is Brett Maverick's dad. James Garner, who played the original Brett Maverick in the TV show, is the father of this movie's Brett Maverick, which is why we were saying at the beginning of this episode, maybe if you look at it the right way, uh, this could be a continuation of the uh, of the actual uh, TV show. If, if you wanted to look at it that way, you absolutely could. Um, is it? I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe Mel Gibson's character has been Brett Maverick Jr. this whole time. Who knows? Yeah, um, wasn't because wasn't wasn't the original Brett Maverick like a lawman? I don't remember. I I couldn't. T- I think they were both gamblers. Uh, okay. According to the plot description on IMDb, Brett and Bart Maverick are well dressed gamblers who migrate from town to town, always looking for a good game. Oh, well, all right. Well, then I well then I don't really know. In I mean, what way you could look at it where he would, this is a sequel to the show, then I guess. Yeah, well, I mean, unless he's pulling off a con. Yeah, sure. Possibly. Yeah. Potentially. I like, I mean, it's the old West. It's not like anyone's checking papers. You show up to town and you say you're the new marshal. Everyone's kind of like, no, oh, okay, I guess you are. Uh, fair point. Yeah. Um, Jack Kelly, who had played Bart Maverick, had actually died two years before this movie came out. So if they were hoping for a cameo from him, it was kind of undone by that, unfortunately. Um, but okay, so then next thing you know, James Garner's taking a bath in the tub next to Mel Gibson. So the two of them are sitting there and then Jodie Foster shows up and does take the money. Um, so it's just like double cross after double cross after double cross after double cross after double cross. And so at the end, you're just like, okay. And then it's alluded to that they're going to get the money back from her. And it's going to be a fun little cat and mouse thing. Uh, But not before it's revealed that only half the money had actually been in the satchel. And he hid the rest of it in his boots. Gives half of it to his dad, keeps, or I guess gives a a portion of it to his dad and keeps the rest for himself. Is kind of the the implication there. 
Uh, and of course, Jodie Foster didn't get his boots. Uh, it's also kind of implied that uh, she slept with both of them. Yeah, that, that is implied when she remarks on how similar they are. Right. Kind of like, you know, checks out their junk in the tub. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's uh, that's the end of this movie, which, again, it it kind of falls apart. And it's it's all played as comedy. Like, it's all like in this. And then this funny thing happens. And then just when you think they're out of it, this funny thing happens. You're like, OK, but how funny is all of this really? Yeah, well, well, that's the thing, right? It plays like it's supposed to be this hilarious thing, and it doesn't really come off that way. It's like a joke that you ju- that just doesn't quite end. So when you get to the end of it, you're just kind of like, "Oh, okay, it's over." Yeah, it is that man. The the writing and the plotting of this movie is where it really fails, is where it really falters, and which is interesting considering that this movie is written by two time Academy Award winning screenwriter uh, William Goldman, uh, who won Academy Awards for All the President's Men and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Yeah, well, and I guess, one of I which guess is I, a quintessential Western poker movie. I, I guess I should say it, it's mainly the end. I mean. It, how we've been talking is it feels like maybe he wrote himself into a corner and didn't know how to write himself out of it. So, you know, cause I mean, I won't say that the writing is bad throughout the entire movie. There's just the, at, you know, the last, I don't know what half hour would you say? Um, Not even that I'd say probably like 10 to 20 minutes 10 to 20 minutes. Yeah. Where, like, if you examine that ending and then go back to the rest of the movie, you, you're left with a lot of questions. A lot of stuff doesn't add up. And there's some plot holes mm-hmm. that you could drive a truck through. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just feels like, I don't know, maybe he was rushed. Maybe he didn't know how to end it. Uh, who knows? It, it may have been one of those cases where the studio had some ideas. Also very possible. You know, you know how studios get with when they have those ideas. Yeah, and I mean, they would definitely have ideas about this movie. It's, you know, it's a star-studded Western from Richard Donner, for fuck's sake. Yeah, it's Richard Donner with and Mel Brooks. It's the, their fourth team-up after those first three Lethal Weapon movies. Uh, Mel Gibson is kind of at the height, the height, excuse me, of his fame at this point, really. Uh, and he's one year away from winning his Oscar for Braveheart. So, I mean, he's only going to get bigger in the years to follow. Yeah, so this, this is a hot movie. So you better believe the studio had some ideas. You also have Jodie Foster uh, in her one of her first major roles after her Academy Award win for Silence of the Lambs. She does Summersby in 93 and then follows it up with this. Like this is her first big budget studio movie after, after that. Um, you've got James Coburn who will before the end of the decade when his Oscar for the movie Affliction, like you've got some really great actors doing really great things uh, in this movie. Uh, so yeah, you're, you're right. The studio is absolutely going to have some thoughts. Yeah. So that could explain the ending, but overall though, I, I mean, the ending is, you know, it feels a little weird, but the rest of the movie, I still had a great time. It's fun. It's yeah. a fun movie. You can tell the cast is having a good time. And the cast is, for all the things we know about them personally, really charming. Yeah, with the exception of one of them. Uh, I mean, I, I, 
I would say Mel Gibson's probably the the most objectionable figure in this in this movie. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, just, look, is he charming? From a personal sure. standpoint, sure. But he uh, is. that's like the reason he became a star in the first place. But but is he a terrible person otherwise? Yes. Yes. Yes, he is. <laughs> yes, yes, he is. And that should not be forgotten. No. And I, I'm just I want to tell you the official stance of the Disenfranchised podcast is that we do not forget. Nope. We do not forget what a terrible person Mel Gibson is. Um, but again, at this point, like, let me kind of look through what his his career up to this point. So he does, he falls bass backwards into Mad Max in the late 70s, 1979, kind of falls bass backwards into that, gains international appeal with Gallipoli, which is the, uh, that was a Peter Weir movie, I think. Let me double check that before I sound like an idiot. It was uh, the Peter Weir film, uh, Gallipoli. Uh, and then he does the next two uh, Mad Max films, uh, Road Warrior and Beyond Thunderdome. Uh, and then after Road Warrior, he does uh, The Year of Living Dangerously, The Bounty, The River, Mrs. Softall. And then the year after Mad Max, or two years after Mad Max, Beyond Thunderdome, his very next movie is Lethal Weapon. And that's the one that kind of catapults him. Uh, Lethal Weapon 2 in 89, Bird on a Wire with Goldie Hawn in 1990. He does Hamlet also in 90, 1990 with Franco Zeffirelli, um, which is the not quite as good as Kenneth Branagh version of Hamlet. Lethal Weapon 3 in 92 and Forever Young also comes out in 92. And then he starts gaining momentum pretty heavily. Man Without a Face in 93, Maverick 94. He does Braveheart the next year in 95. And that like catapults him up to like biggest star in the world status. Um, he does Pocahontas also in 95, do, doing a voice for a big budget Disney movie, does him some favors. Uh, the movie Ransom, which is huge uh, in 96. Conspiracy Theory with Julia Roberts in 97. She's also on her ascent. Uh, 98, he's in Lethal Weapon 4. Payback in 99, which is what if Mel Gibson was the bad guy, which is kind of quaint that that was the whole uh, marketing campaign for that movie. Crazy, crazy. And then he, I think this is where some of that stuff about him starts leaking out. He does do Chicken Run, Patriot, and What Women Want in 2000. Uh, and then by this point, he's starting to kind of dip down. Uh, we Were Soldiers and Signs in 2002, The Singing Detective in 2003, which I remember he won a People's Choice Award for. And I remember his acceptance speech was, that's weird, I didn't really do anything this year. Or wait, is this why I'm winning this? Which was a really funny acceptance speech. <laughs> but I think it's 2003, 2004 is when all like the tapes are released because he does nothing between 2005 and 2010. And one of those reclamation projects in the early 2010s is the Jodie Foster film, The Beaver, a film that she directed and cast him in as the lead because she remained really good friends with Mel Gibson and is to date one of his most staunch defenders. Um, like her and... Robert Downey Jr. are the two guys that are really big defenders of Mel Gibson right now, uh, which is like like Robert Downey Jr. always used to say that he would do an Iron Man 4 if Mel Gibson directed it. But you're kind of like, oh, yeah. Ooh, ooh. 
Um, it's kind of insane that you read off all of those great movies before 1994, and then you're like, then he starts to ascend. Like, are you serious? I mean, that's 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 kind of my memory of it is because after Braveheart, like he's just the biggest guy in Hollywood for a while. Oh yeah, no, I absolutely remember that time period when Mel Gibson was in everything. Like, like yeah, everything and completely untouchable uh, as far as like star power impeachability goes. Um, and then, you know, you say some really terrible things to some police officers uh, after you have been uh, correctly uh, pulled over for drunk driving and those tapes are released to the public. And then all of a sudden uh, you're in you're in movie jail for five years. Uh, should have been longer. Damn. Like he, he like the in, as, in, as far as public perception goes, he's still kind of dog meat in certain circles. But like the dude got nominated for an Oscar uh, just a few years ago for Hacksaw Ridge, like five years ago, he's nominated for an Oscar for directing Hacksaw Ridge, which feels weird. That is a little weird, but it is also the Academy. Correct. I mean, yeah, it's Hollywood, and they're gonna um, they're gonna do what they're gonna do. Um, he has directed now at this point five films: uh, The Man Without a Face, Braveheart, The Passion of the Christ, Apocalypto, and Hacksaw Ridge. Uh, of those, I saw one in theaters. I bet you can never guess which one. I don't know, Stephen, which one? You can absolutely guess which one. It's it's Passion of the Christ, 2004. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, so I, two, look, I don't know. That movie's a little... Look, I didn't want to assume. Fair enough. And, <laughs> and, and yeah, I guess fair play to you for not assuming. But no, it was, it was absolutely Passion of the Christ. Um, is the only one of those films I saw in theaters. Um but I mean, and I, I think I've only seen two of them all together, like Braveheart and Hacksaw or Brave, Braveheart and Passion of the Christ, I think are the only two I've actually seen. But like the 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 knock against Gibson for the most part is that a lot of his films are unnecessarily bloody, violent, and gory. Like that's been the case pretty much since Passion of the Christ. Apocalypto, I've heard, was the same way. And then Hacksaw Ridge was also like one of those where like there's lots of like blood and guts and brains and things kind of spilling all over the place which i mean i don't know what that says about him as a director but there you go eh, yeah uh, you know uh, there's one of my weirdest movie going stories about passion of the christ is uh when i went to see it came out of the theaters the first time ever and since before or since uh that not a single person was saying a single word to one another Complete it's a tough silence. Sit. It's a tough set. It's like I would I would imagine it would be somewhere in like the echelons of of films like Schindler's List or things that are just so emotionally overwhelming that you're just like numb after you're done watching it. Like I've only ever been able to, to watch it one time, and I'll probably never watch it again if I'm really honest. Like it was, it's yeah. a tough movie. No, I, I will never watch that movie again. I only need yeah. to see it once. The only time I needed to see it. All you need. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. Like it's, it's a really, really tough set. Um, and I mean, I remember at the time there was a lot of dialogue about um, Gibson's anti-Semitism, uh, which again, we just a year or so after the fact kind of got on full display, um, which, you know, uh, sucks. That was so like linked to that movie and then it ended up being, oh, and surprise, it's actually true he's he's an awful person and uh we should have known it all along it's gross 
he he was uh, he was ahead of his time in terms of just uh, our heroes being assholes. Yeah, because uh, now I mean after I mean after some of the like awareness campaigns and things that have come out within the last few years, I remember. Okay, so this is bizarre, but I remember when the Me Too movement was gaining steam. Gibson was actually nominated for Hacksaw Ridge, and someone interviewed him about Me Too, and he had to come up with this like complete BS response of like, yeah, I think it's about time that, you know, women speak out and you're just kind of like, really Mel? Do you? Really? Do you really think it's about time? Is it? <laughs> Tell me more, Mel. Tell me more. <laughs> I remember a lot of people uh, gleefully pointing out the hypocrisy there. Oh, good Lord. I can only imagine. <laughs> But let's talk a little bit about some of the the happier uh, parts, the happier points of this movie. Uh, Jodie Foster uh, is, I wish she would do more movies because she's functionally retired from acting now. Like she does not show up in stuff very often. The last movie she was in, apparently she's got one coming out later this year. uh, Or maybe it's already out. The, according to this, it's already out. uh, The Mauritanian. Uh, which I know nothing about, but apparently she's in it. But uh, before that, the last movie she was in is a movie we could probably cover on this podcast one day, uh, Hotel Artemis, where she plays oh, the nurse. Yeah, I love Hotel Artemis. That yeah. It's great. I, I was going to say, it, it sounds like a movie right up your alley, man. I honestly forgot she was in that movie, and that's yeah, terrible. She's, that's terrible. She's like I, the lead of that movie. Well, yeah. in fairness, there was a lot going on in that movie. True, sure, but and once once Jeff Goldblum shows up in that movie, you kind of forget there's anyone else in that movie, <laughs> as as is the case most of the time. No, but there's a reason that um, Jeff Goldblum has risen to the the ranks and the echelon of memification that he has, um, and yeah, it's it's for for stuff very much like that. Uh, but Jodie Foster works pretty consistently. I would say through about 2008, 2009. And then she kind of starts backing off a little bit. Uh, I mean, she's, and then starts like, she directs the Beaver in 2011. She is part of the ensemble in the film Carnage, which is based on the Broadway play God of Carnage. I've heard the movie is bad. Uh, She's apparently in the movie Elysium in 2013. And then doesn't really do much until Hotel Artemis in uh, 2018. So, like, yeah, she just kind of chills out. I think she's mostly directing, spending time with her family. But she's great. I want Jodie Foster to do more stuff. Yeah, and I, I haven't. I can't say I've seen a whole lot of her movies. I mean, I've seen the big ones, of course. Let's run through her credits because she actually was a child star for a while. In a lot of stuff when she was younger, actually, one of her first prominent roles was in the uh, the some early Martin Scorsese movies. So she's in Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore in 1974, uh, Taxi Driver in 1976, which is, I think, probably the first of her movies that I've seen, uh, Bugsy Malone in 76 as well. Uh, the Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane, also in 76, Freaky Friday, which is probably the first movie I ever saw her in, which also comes out. 76, big year for Jodie Foster as an actress. And she's a teenager at that point. 
um, but works pretty consistently uh, into the early 80s, uh, kind of gets some negative press because a, uh, a would-be presidential assassin was obsessed with her. Um, the guy who tried to kill Reagan, like, did so in order to try to impress Jodie Foster, which is ugh, weird. Uh, she manages to come out of it relatively unscathed. Uh, she's in The Accused in 1988, which I've heard is fantastic. Wins her Oscar for Silence of the Lambs in 1991. Uh, and then directs her first feature with Little Man Tate, also in 91. Uh, is in Summer's Bee in 93. Does this movie and Nell in 1994. Nell was kind of her big Oscar play for that year. And I think she probably would have won for that had she not just won for Silence of the Lambs like three years earlier. Uh, Contact in 97, which is probably either that or Silence of the Lambs. I have a hard time. Probably one of my favorite Jodie Foster performances. Does the uh, Anna and the King, the non-musical uh, remake of The King and I in 99, opposite Chow Yun-Fat, I want to say. Thanks. So, uh, yeah. Yes, Chow Yun-Fat. I remember seeing a lot of trailers for that movie without actually ever seeing that movie. Uh, David Fincher's Panic Room in 2002, uh, The Very Long Engagement in 2004, Flight Plan in 2005, Spike Lee's Inside Man in 2006, and then The Brave One in 2007. And that's when she kind of starts to back off, goes on to smaller roles and things like that. So like just once she wins her Oscar and I think kind of cements herself as, you know, one of the great act she's actually won two oscars and i'm guessing the first one is for the accused in 1988 okay so she wins in 88 and then again in 90 uh for 91 so there's two oscars really quickly again i think she probably could have won a third for now had she not won the other two so soon before why does that matter remind me why that matters Stephen. Uh, it's it's an it's petty because uh, you see the academy are um, petty people. Uh, okay. The academy are literally made up of just like the Hollywood, um, like the Hollywood. I, I don't want to say the Hollywood elite, although they're certainly a part of the academy. But it's like the Hollywood who's who. Like they are the people who make movies, and so you're like, yeah, and that's why you get like weird wins, like actors winning for roles that they shouldn't win for, but it's because they haven't ever won before. Like Al Pacino winning for scent of a woman when really he probably should have won for like the Godfather part two or something. Um, because, because you, you can't give it to him that year because you have to give it to uh, Art Carney for Harry and Tonto, despite, you know, because he's been a part of the Hollywood he's been around Hollywood doing stuff for years. Um, you know, why wouldn't we award this guy that we love? Oh, well, okay. Now we've got to figure out how to make it up to Al Pacino. Uh, it's why you get Russell Crowe winning for gladiator and not for, Oh, uh, the insider or, um, beautiful mind, you know, um, it's, it, it's that kind of stuff. Uh, they pay attention to who wins and when. Uh, and so you get kind of all those like really petty reasons. Like, well, they just won. Do we really want to do this again with this person? Uh, the only times that's really kind of happened um, recent recent memories, you get Tom Hanks winning two years in a row for Philadelphia and Forrest Gump. 
really because you can't deny the power of Forrest Gump in 1994. Like it was the biggest movie of the year that year. And it's kind of undeniable. So you have to, you have to give Tom Hanks the Oscar back to back. Um, Then you get like, even against like John Travolta in um, Pulp Fiction or Morgan Freeman in Shawshank Redemption, who both of whom were nominated uh, Tom Hanks was kind of undeniable that year. The other notable example I would say is probably, and again, in recent memory, is probably Alejandro Iñárritu, who won for Birdman in uh, 2014, and then like The Revenant, like the very next year in 2015. I think I think I have those dates right. Um, yeah, um, but wins also back to back years, and I think in both cases he had won the DGA. So that's kind of like the precursor. But in the first case, his film also won Best Picture. In the second, it didn't. Best Picture, I think, went to Spotlight that year. So usually the two awards go to the same movie, but in that case, they didn't. So it's kind of a head scratcher. But generally speaking, the Academy is not one to award people multiple awards in a very short amount of time. Um, They'll nominate them a whole bunch. Uh, See, uh, for example, Meryl Streep. Or Bradley Cooper, uh, Bradley Cooper, who like keeps getting nominated but never actually wins anything. Um, like they have their their favorite people that they really love, uh, but they don't always win. Um, but Bradley Cooper, I, I think right now Amy Adams is the one who's like, okay, when's she going to win? And it's at this point pretty much a given that whatever movie she does win for is going to be a disappointment because she probably should have won for Arrival. Um, which she was not even nominated for, ridiculously. So, and it isn't also the, in this year, I guess. At least it's kind of notorious that they are literally all just old white guys. Uh, I mean, that happens a lot. I mean, this year, like, there's literally no diversity on the Academy. Panel. There are, there is now because after two okay. years of Oscars so white, they kind of changed the rules mm. and. Um, like opened it up for nominations outside of just nominees and winners. Like, cause before I think you had to be nominated by a member of the Academy or you had to be an actual nominee for the award yourself in order to be a part of the Academy. And they opened up the nomination circle a little bit uh, to include other people who are um, prominent within the industry. Uh, but they broadened out the circle a little bit so uh, to include some more diversity. So then you started seeing like, and, and that's why I think you've seen a noticeable shift in the kinds of nominees that we've had more recently. Um, you've also got now, like this past year, Daniel Kaluuya just won for uh, Judas and the Black Messiah. Um, the, uh, the, the actress from uh minari whose name is escaping me right now and that's going to bug me unless i figure it out uh one for best supporting actress this year yu jung yoon uh who won for minari so you've got um you know a little more diversity there in the um in the supporting categories uh but yet the uh the winners for the the primary categories were uh francis mcdormand who just won her third Oscar. Uh, and then um, Anthony Hopkins, who is the quintessential old white guy uh, in a year where they could have given it to the late Chadwick Boseman. 
Uh, and you can kind of tell that's what the producers and the, the the people who were like producing the Oscar ceremony thought was going to happen because they put it as the last award of the night. Uh, and so then when Anthony Hopkins wins and he's not even at the ceremony and they won't let him like Skype in or zoom in to accept his award, Joaquin Phoenix is like, who clearly doesn't want to be there is like, uh, he's not here. We accept this on his behalf. Thanks. And kind of wanders off stage. And then they're like, all right, that's the Oscars, everybody. Bye. And you're just like, what? Wait, what? Wow. What a shit show. Yeah. It was it, a lot of, uh, got a lot of derision online and of course i wasn't watching it live so i got the recap on twitter which was uh fun to watch as it rolled in a lot of wait that's it or what that's now it's over like because you expect it to be like this build up to this big celebration of chadwick boseman the actor and uh, he doesn't even win they give it to anthony hopkins instead who is this is his second academy award for best actor uh after winning for the same film that Jodie Foster won her second film for, Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. So, yeah, it all comes back to Maverick. Yeah, circling back around. Back on track, baby. But, I mean, yeah, this movie, it, it is. It's fun. James uh, James Garner and James Coburn, the two old Jameses, uh, are doing good work. Uh, James Coburn clearly has really bad arthritis in his hands. So, like, anytime he has to, like, grab hold of something, they kind of cut away from him real quick. Yeah, I love it. I, I will never forget his delivery of two cards, please. He is, he's got one of those voices that you just, you hear it and you're just like, oh, yes. Like it just instant gravitas. Like anytime the guy opens his mouth, that's why you cast him as Water Noose in Monsters, Inc. You know, the guy just kind of brings that, that growl uh, to it. Of course, uh, no stranger to the western genre he was in the magnificent seven that remake of uh the seven samurai what if the seven samurai was a western uh and then also he's in uh the uh the great um sergio leone western a duck you sucker so i mean you've got you know a couple of uh a pretty great james crom or james coburn rather westerns there uh and then he shows up in this one which feels very much like a nod to those other films as well sure yeah I did. I didn't know he had such a history in westerns. That is cool information to know. Yeah, he plays. Um, he was a big fan of the film The Seven Samurai uh, when it was released in America. Like he and his wife like saw it several times. So when they were doing the remake and they approached him for the for a role, um, he was like, "Which one am I playing?" Like he was like really excited. Like, "Which one are you playing?" He was like, "Well, he's this kind of stoic gunfighter. He doesn't say much, but he's really good with a knife." He's like. I'm playing the greatest swordsman in all of Japan. <laughs> and they're like, I mean, I, I guess so. And so he goes to his wife and he goes, honey, I'm playing the greatest swordsman in Japan. That's adorable. <laughs> you love like to see really, it. You do. Like, and he's like an expert marksman and like he, or is a build as an expert marksman. My, one of my favorite gags is he pulls out a gun and he shoots a guy off the horse. Like the guy's like riding toward him and he shoots him off the horse and, the 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 young kid turns to him and goes, "That's the greatest shot I've ever seen." <laughs> and Coburn just very stoically looks up and goes, "The worst." I was aiming for the horse, <laughs> and it's just the way he delivers it. I absolutely like James Coburn, brilliant actor. I absolutely love him. He wins his Oscar in 1998 for the movie Affliction, uh, and then in 20. 20- 
2002 he he's gone he's passed away um but just a phenomenal actor and he has this another one of those i think the role was really really good like in his performance was really great but it's still kind of one of those he's been around doing this thing for so long like why does james coburn not have an oscar kind of becomes the story yeah. And so, and I'm not saying James Coburn shouldn't have an Oscar. He absolutely should have an Oscar. Um, and I'm glad that he does at the end of the day, um, ultimately. But, but yeah, like he's, he's a great talent. He's great in this movie uh, for just four years away from his Oscar at the time of this movie. So good for uh, him. And speaking of people that probably should have Oscars, but don't Alfred Molina's in this movie. Right. Not, not nearly as entertaining as, his uh, his turn in Prince of Persia. We um, are very pro Alfred Molina on this podcast. Let's get not, that out of the way right oh, now. Absolutely. Um, not nearly as entertaining as his turn as Doc Ock in Spider-Man 2. But but still, you love to see an Alfred Molina. You just, you're happy to see him in a movie. This, yeah. And honestly, this other than perhaps the first Indiana Jones film, this is probably one of my first exposures to Alfred Molina as an actor. Um, because most of the stuff I had seen him in, I I have seen him in. I haven't I hadn't seen at this point. Um, he's also he's done other films with Richard Donner. He's also in Lady Hawk uh, from 1985. Uh, so he's worked with Donner before. But again, it's speaking of instant gravitas. He's one of those guys when he shows up, you know, you're in good hands. Like, I think we I think we said that on our Prince of Persia episode. You can just kind of relax for a little bit because Alfred Molina is here to take care of it. Alfred yeah. Molina is here to make it better. Yeah, because uh, let's be honest, he carried Prince of Persia on his back. So <laughs> for our sins, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so uh, yeah, you absolutely know you're in for a good time, and you can be safe knowing that Alfred Molina is here to take care of us. Alfred Molina is here, and everything's going to be okay. Yeah, I love Alfred Molina. I think he's great, um, and I think he's really good in this movie. He is the the most obvious villain of this film. Uh, in this film that doesn't really have a villain really like he's i guess the one you would point to but even he kind of at the end of the movie you're kind of like i guess he's a henchman kind of yeah he's just a henchman he, he's kind of working for like all of these other guys who are probably actually the bad guy or he's working for this other guy who's working with the bad guy but you didn't know they were working together until the very end of the movie and then you didn't know these other two guys are working together and you didn't know they were going to double cross each other. Except again, for- it's it at the ending, it all just kind of falls apart like this. It's like this movie and you're on board and you're having a good time. And then the ending happens and it all just kind of, it's like building a tower of pancakes and you stack it up just too high and it all kind of topples over. That's what the ending does to this movie for me. So I, I was going to say is except for the scene where he gets a telegram from some mysterious person to stop Maverick from making it to the tournament. Mm. but at that point he's as far as we know he's just some random guy that pissed off maverick so Mm. like was he a plant in that uh saloon in the beginning had Mm. he been following maverick up to that point was he just some random guy and then got hired completely by coincidence right yeah and and (sighs) this this is this is what's unclear like it seems like it's just kind of one of those, like, this is another guy who hates Maverick and who has a reason to want him not in the tournament. So we'll use that to our advantage. Like he seems more a pawn than anything else. 
because it seems like he's got his own plans when that Derringer comes flying out of his, his wrist, like he's got his own plans for cleaning this whole thing up. Yeah. And, and the dealer at that final table, is he working for, I, I remember thinking when I was a kid, is he, is he working just for angel or is he working for everybody? I think he's working for the Commodore, but he doesn't like nobody. It's clear that Maverick knows the dealer's cheating. Yeah. But like, and you kind of get a sense for it if you're like watching really closely. And I remember this is one of those movies that my dad would catch the little, the little things in this movie. And so when we were watching it, like on, I think when we would rent it from the video store, my dad was like, okay, watch this. And he'd like go like frame by frame through the scene where the dealer, like he shuffles the deck and then he like pulls it out and really quickly like pockets the other one with his other hand. Like it's this whole really quick, like three card Monty kind of thing. And the camera picks it up and it like focuses on it, like highlights it. Like you see him like dealing from the bottom of the deck at one point as well. Like you see it all kind of happening. He might actually be working with Angel now that I think about it. Cause Angel's got the the best hand up until Maverick asks for the one card from the top of the deck. And then magically, quote unquote, makes it manifest as the card that he needs. Right. Which, so then I'm asking like, okay, this is clearly a stacked deck. Mm -hmm. So is it actually magic or does Maverick just think that, okay, the card I need, is it like a 4D chess situation? You're like, okay, we're going to deal him all the entirety of a Royal flush, but for one card, which we're going to keep think on he, top. Do you think Maverick's counting cards? He might have, I wouldn't put it past this character to be counting cards. I mean, I wouldn't either, but he'd have to know the makeup of the deck because he can only see the cards in front of him. Because sure. by the time he asks for that one card, no one else has shown their hand. Right. And I mean, at the end of the day, I guess, you know, whatever. It's just like he had a one in however many chance for that to be the card he needed. And here's the thing. I don't think anyone in the history of anything has ever thought about the movie Maverick this much. No, no, they haven't. <laughs> but this is these are the kind of people I am and we are. Correct. So. This is this is who we are as individuals, and you love it or you hate it. And if you hate it, sorry guys. Um, maybe we won't do this next episode. No, let's not maybe. make those. Don't make those sort of promises. I said maybe. All right, fair enough. That gives us, uh, you know, deniability. We've got it. Um, absolutely, we do, and I'll, I'm in, I intend to use it. <laughs> and actually, honestly, uh, how that poker game turns out didn't matter no no yeah when you think about it how that yeah that the how that game turned out didn't matter no and and that's and it's kind of mildly infuriating because that's where the stakes of the movie are yeah and then it's like oh but forget about it it's not important really the the entirety of the movie is building up to this poker tournament and him winning it and at Mm -hmm. the end at the end of the movie it literally doesn't matter correct and it that because literally every other character is going to double cross someone yeah, because like, because when Coop is laying out the plan they had, it's like, okay, if you win, goes off like nothing is wrong. If right. anybody else wins, I do what I did. Correct. So, and it, it, which is kind of also why I feel like the dealer might have been working with Angel. Now that I think about it, because if he'd been working with the Commodore, the Commodore would have had the best hand at the table, without right. the option for getting the other one. And when he's dealing 
from the bottom of the deck, he's de- when he's giving cards from the bottom of the deck, he's giving those cards to Angel specifically. Right. He's giving Angel the cards from the bottom of the deck. So that leads me to believe he's probably in league with Angel. Sure. Because, and again, Angel's the guy, a- Angel seems like the guy who's got his own plan to walk out of there the winner. And then the Commodore and Cooper have their own, have have are in league together with their own plan. And then the Commodore is, I think, the one that kind of ropes in Angel at the last minute to try to get Maverick out of the way. So I think that's I think that's the only part of the plan he was in on, and everything else he's kind of doing on his own. That's my read on it. After like this is probably like my fourth or fifth time watching the movie, like ever, and my first time watching it in gosh, probably 10 years, maybe more. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've seen this movie maybe tens of hundreds of times, but this is this is the first time I'm old enough to actually look at it with a critical eye and an analytical sure. eye. And Well, and ever since my dad kind of pointed that out to me, I've, I've always been fascinated by the dynamics of that last poker match. So I was particularly paying attention to it this time because, again, that's the most fun part of the movie. It, particularly when everybody at the table has a, a really freaking good hand. Like the Commodore's got, oh, just two small pair <laughs> of eight. eight. The look on the and look eight. on his face, too. <laughs> um and uh like the look on his face, and then he's like got the cigar in his mouth, and then Angel pulls out his straight flush, and the cigar just kind of like drops in his mouth. Like, right. Such an obvious like Commodore losing his boner gag. I love that. <laughs> That's great comedy. Um, like the whole the whole movie is it's it's a lot of fun. But that last scene in particular, so really like paying attention to what's happening. And as soon as I saw the close up on the card on the deck switch, I was like, oh right, there's stuff going on here. I need to pay attention to. Like it kind of all came flooding back. Like this last game is rigged, and he still manages to beat it. And I kind of want to figure out how. And Honestly, it seems like it's just dumb luck unless he is actually able to manifest the card that he needs, which the movie really wants you to think that he does. And and correct me if I'm wrong, maybe I missed it, but he only mentions that once at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And then it comes back up again an hour and 45 minutes later. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's Chekhov's magic card. And it's not even really like this. I I mean, I, I guess I understand what he means, but like... He talks about like I could cut a deck to any card I wanted. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't do that in the final mm-hmm. scene. He 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 just picks a card off the top and hopes it's the right one. It's not anything what he was talking about in the beginning. No, but but he does the exact same thing. You see, he closes his eyes and he picks up the card. Here's the thing: he could have also won with a nine of uh, a nine of spades too. That's not a royal flush. But it would have been a higher straight than what Angel had. Uh, right, you're right. But so that's not as that's not as cool though. Okay? It's, it's not as cool. It's not as narratively fulfilling. Like I understand. You don't get I, the epic like slow mo toss the ace of spades onto the pile of chips shot. But the based on the reaction, it's almost like he thought he had a nine, and it ended up being the ace. Like because he he reacts with the oh I can't believe I was wrong. And then throws the card, and it ends up being the right card for a royal flush, but the wrong card for a high straight. But yeah, I poker. Guess maybe that recontextualizes that scene. He actually is disappointed. He's not faking disappointment. 
Right. That's that's kind of my read on it this time. If I watch it again, it, I might have a completely different read. But that Maybe. that's kind of how I read it this time. Like he's actually disappointed he didn't get the high straight or he didn't like he he was hoping to get just enough to to win but then gets like the one that really kills it for him but because he was so like focused on the nine of spades it isn't when he's going when he um correct me if i'm wrong here but when he does uh break the deck at the beginning and is like closing his eyes and thinking about a card isn't he thinking about or is doesn't he pull the nine of spades that time i don't remember i think he might i'm not sure i now I want to go back and rewatch that scene in particular, but if that's the case, then I think that would be a little extra funny. Um, yeah. Well, but the, then, then he talks about how it's all magic and he pulls the queen of hearts when Jodie Foster's character is walking away. So, that's, so yeah. everything we just said, probably not even a little, a little bit, a little bit right, but nope. Cause here's but the it, thing. The end of this movie pretty much just means that the poker tournament doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, which is another reason why I kind of don't like the uh, end of this movie is because that that poker tournament is really fun. It's like the best part of the movie. Yeah, that uh, the montage to the tune of uh, "Good Run of Bad Luck" is just uh, sung by Clint Black, who at the end of that song gets chucked off that boat. Chef's kiss just <laughs> brought back a lot of memories. Oh sure, it's it's a fun scene. Um, like the whole poker trip. Like as soon as they're on that riverboat, I'm invested. Like I'm I'm locked in because that's again that's the part of the movie I'm having the most fun with. Like I like, I don't like playing cards, but I like watching movies about people playing cards. Sure. Yeah. Uh, like it's that. Those are some of my favorite scenes of Guy Ritchie's Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. Um, I watched California Split after George Siegel died earlier this year. Uh, had a lot of fun with the poker scenes in that movie. Um, like it's just, it makes for some high stakes filmmaking. And I think it's really fun. Uh, unfortunately, there are not a lot of really truly great poker movies. No, I'm trying to think of them and I can't, but I mean, I'd probably put this one up there. Top five poker movies. This would be up there. Uh, let's do, I'm going to do a quick Google search for best poker movies. And there's let's a top see. five list we probably should have included in this episode, but we didn't think about it until just now. So, <laughs> well, this movie was a kind of a late addition for a couple of different reasons, but so late it's uh, our, our social media does not reflect it. Um, Molly's game casino Royale's got a really good uh, poker, uh, a really good poker scene. Uh, the Grand, which is a movie I've never heard of. Maverick, Rounders, Mississippi Grind, uh, which I've heard is pretty good. Big Hand for the Little Guy, Cold Deck, or Big Hand for the Little Lady, sorry, Cold Deck. Kenny Rogers, The Gambler. Oh, hell yeah. I'm surprised that song isn't in this movie. Yeah, I mean, you do have to know when to hold them. And uh, when to it, fold them. It, it helps if you also know when to fold them. Uh, yeah. but, but again, knowing when to walk away and when to run, pretty essential. True. Uh, I've heard it said that you should probably never count your money while you're sitting at the table. Brett, do you have any thoughts on that? No. I mean, I suppose there's always time enough for counting when the dealing's done. Um, I guess when you really think about it. That's a fair point. Uh, my buddy and I used to do that all the time. Uh, just speak through uh, the lyrics of songs. It's one of my favorite stupid things to do. I mean, we have done it from time to time as well. <laughs> we have. <laughs> We have. Um, this is just yeah. me not remembering all the lyrics to The Gambler. Oh. I apologize. 
Gambler is one of those karaoke standards for me. So I, I know it well. Now every gambler knows the secret to surviving. Sorry, I will not continue. Um, <laughs> Brett, this movie opens on May 20th, 1994. Uh, it opens at number one to $17.2 million. It will go on to gross a domestic box office of 101.6 million dollars. Uh, so it will certainly, certainly do very well, which kind of makes you wonder why it never got a sequel. I would imagine it's probably because within the next couple of years, Mel Gibson's star is so on the rise that he doesn't have time to make a sequel to Maverick because he's making a whole bunch of other movies. True, yeah. But I think, it, like we like we were talking about at the beginning, I think it would be fun to see him, uh, to see the the movie kind of dig into the the Maverick family. Uh, if if uh, James Garner's character is the original Brett Maverick, then uh, is there a cousin Brett? What about cousin Beauregard's kids? Like, I would love to see kind of all, and I would love to see Roger Moore come back and reprise his role as Beauregard. Um, as well because i just the idea of of roger moore in a in a western uh in like a late 90s western really appeals to me uh also i think you have and i'm gonna check the dates on this just two years before this you have clint eastwood's unforgiven which kind of shakes up the whole western genre like it really kind of recontextualizes the western for the uh, for the for the 90s and so i think this movie is in some ways a response to that but and also so, in some ways might be a little hurt by that because it that's kind of like the last truly great western is unforgiven which if you've not seen unforgiven you should absolutely see unforgiven oh yeah no i absolutely have. okay i i am of the camp that likes tombstone a little bit more but sure you know, i mean but you're also a kurt russell super fan so yeah, and on top of on top of the fact that Val Kilmer's Doc Holliday is maybe one of my favorite performances of all time. I I completely will give you that one because I am your Huckleberry. So that's all I have to you, say about you, that. You ain't no Daisy. You ain't no Daisy. You're a Daisy if you do. <laughs> I got two guns, one for each of you. <laughs> uh, Maverick opens at number one. Uh, in number two, down from number one the week before in its opening weekend, uh, is one of your favorite movies of all time. Is it? It is. And from 1994, one of your favorite movies of all time. Is this when The Crow came out? It is when The Crow came out. Oh, yes. Look at that. Came out the week before Maverick. So there you go. Alex Proyas is The Crow, a movie we will unfortunately never be able to talk about on this podcast. Nope. Uh, because it got really bad sequels. Um, Three of them, in fact. <laughs> in fact, all but one of them are on HBO Max right now, uh, which is infuriating if you want to watch all of the Crow movies. Sure. Uh, I mean, they're not connected in any way, except for the second one. is sort Which of I think connected. is the one that's not on there. Well, isn't that just dumb as hell? All right. Correct. Um, number three is uh, When a Man Loves a Woman. Uh, which is down from second. Uh, it's in its fourth weekend. It so far has earned 20 million, 20.5 million. The Crow, by the way, has so far in its two weekends earned $23.9 million. 
in fourth place is the Spike Lee film Crooklyn. Excuse me, it's the Spike Lee joint. Oh, my apologies. My apologies to Mr. Lee. It's fine. Um, the Spike Lee joint Crooklyn. Uh, pass it along. And uh, number five in fifth place, maintaining its fifth place status from the week before in its 11th week in theaters is the comedy Four Weddings and a Funeral, which I remember that one being a very big deal in 94. Yeah, I remember it being a big deal and I couldn't have cared any less to see it. So. I've, I've still never seen it. Um, rounding out the top 10, you've got With Honors in sixth place and seventh place, Three ninjas kick back. What if oh, they hell free? yeah. And what if they kicked back? Three ninjas, baby. <laughs> um, in number eight, in uh, eighth place, no escape. Uh, ninth place is you so crazy. And in 10th place, clean slate. Uh, also worthy of note in 12th place, uh, a movie that we brought up earlier on this episode, Schindler's List. And in 13th place, another movie we brought up earlier on this podcast, Philadelphia. Huh? So, uh, yeah, some, uh, some uh, some other movies kind of hanging out there. I guess Philadelphia and Schindler's was both hanging out from the year before, uh, back when movies could just kind of hang out in movie theaters and still make money. That's so weird nowadays, right? Like, I mean, those movies were came out in time for to play at the ninety three Oscars, like wow. the ninety four Oscars, which would have been like a few months before, yeah. uh, and they're still in theaters in May. Like summer blockbuster season is rolling in the next week. Flintstones will unseat Maverick as the number one movie. Uh, also coming out next week, Beverly Hills Cop three, the worst of the Beverly Hills Cop films uh, with a bullet. Um, but yeah, so there you go. That's uh, that's Maverick. Uh, the uh, tomatometer score is 66 percent. Uh, critic consensus it isn't terribly deep but it's witty and undeniably charming and the cast is obviously having fun yeah not not an inaccurate statement the metacritic score is uh 62 based on 28 critical reviews and the overall letterbox average is 3.2 brett what did you rate 1994's maverick it started out as a 4.5 but, you know, we got talking about the ending and I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so we're going to go with four. Going to go with the four. It's a three for me. Um, I had a good time. I liked it. I thought it was it was it was good fun. But that ending really like deflated my sales, like in, in ways that I can. I would probably say it would have been at a probably a three point five if that ending had been a little stronger. Uh, but, yeah, it ended up at about a three for me, which is. um uh, fine, I suppose. <laughs> it's it's a fine movie. Yeah, you know what? Hold on, wait. Let me roll that back a little bit. I think I didn't factor in the nostalgia. So four point five. It's four point five. I, okay. I love this movie. I, I got the nostalgia for it. It's great. Is the ending kind of not so good? Yeah, but like, definitely. Yeah, we've established that. To, to me, to me, maybe that's what's keeping it from being a five instead of a. 4.5 so we're gonna we're gonna go with 4.5 is that purely nostalgia goggles firmly in place probably uh, but you recognize so, that but so. i recognize it so there you go so that's that's something anyway um so all right well that is our episode on maverick but before we go you guys we have been asking you for what is this episode 38 we've been uh, asking yeah. you for 38 episodes now 
to send us an email and you finally done it. So thank you. Uh, thank you to our friend, David, for sending us an email. Uh, he wrote us in response to our Power Rangers episode, which is an episode that people really seem to be enjoying right now, which I'm very happy about. Uh, I'm sure our friend Ian Spiegelbloom would also be very happy to hear that as well. Uh, he says, I remember uh, watching the early seasons and the whole Green Ranger to White Ranger saga was awesome when I first saw it. I watched the two first movies when they came out. So, of course, I had to see the new remake as an adult. I enjoyed it for what it was and would probably watch it again if I was browsing and saw it on. What I really wish, though, is we got a true, full, gritty version. Uh, there was a cool Dark Power Ranger short about six years ago that was incredible on YouTube. I highly recommend it. It's not for kids. <laughs> yeah, we should have brought that up in the episode. It's got Katie Sackhoff in it. Um, I like her. There's a couple cameos. Isn't Vanderbeek in it? I think so, yeah. But it's okay. yeah, it's, it's very gritty, like... I remember hearing about that, but I don't think I ever actually watched it. You should go check it out. It's only like 10 or 15 minutes, maybe not even that, but it's, okay. uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's dark, gritty power Rangers. It's very okay. good. Cool. He says, keep up the great show. And he also suggests that maybe we cover uh, the movie Ender's game. So David, before the end of the year for you, we're going to cover the end. We're going to cover the movie Ender's game. We are going to put it on the schedule it, before the end of December, 2021, that is our commitment to you. We will have covered Ender's Game for you because you wrote us in and suggested a movie. And I have promised from the very beginning that anyone who did that, we would put it on the list. So you're the first. And so we're definitely, definitely going to do that. Hopefully not the last. Hopefully not the last. Keep emailing us, uh, disenfranchpod at gmail.com. Uh, if you do, we will uh, probably read your uh, letter on the air uh, Tucker got back to us by email as well and says we need to put um, behind the mask on our short list hell so. yeah we do you have you still haven't seen it I I'm still so have, mad I'm, about it I'm waiting until we cover it for the show I want to go in fresh all right the movie's so good so well I mean there's a possibility we could potentially cover it during spooky thon but I'm not going to make any promises all right so I'm just going to, I'm going to put it out there into the world. There it is. It's out there into the world. Do with it what you will world. Um, but definitely shoot us an email. Uh, we would love to hear from you. Uh, and if you do, you might hear your very words on this very podcast. Um, you can also find us on social media. We are at disenfranch pod on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Uh, if you would like to, uh, we would appreciate it uh, if you would go to your podcatcher of choice and drop in a five-star rating and review. We would really appreciate it. Ratings are good. Reviews are even better. And particularly if they're on Apple Podcasts, we would certainly appreciate that uh, as well because uh, that'll increase visibility and let other people find us, which we would love. Um, you can find me, Stephen Foxworthy, on social media. I am at Chewy Walrus. On uh, Twitter, Letterboxd, and Instagram. Brett, such as you are on social media, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me on Letterboxd at Gunslinger Fire or on Instagram at sus underscore warlock. Awesome. You keeping up with those Letterboxd reviews? Absolutely not. All right. <laughs> All right. Just what I would expect. Love Look, I'll, I'll get it updated. Look, we I have, this, we have this conversation every couple months. I'll we get do. it updated. I'll get it updated. It's fine. It's just that I like to link to those on my, my letterbox list of all the episodes of the show. And uh, the, the Brett, the, the Brett, the Brett, 
scores are kind of uh, lacking in links. So I just figured I'd mention it. I'm not yeah. mad at you. It's fine. Hey, man, I get it. Uh, but anyway, I am Stephen Foxworthy. And for my co-host, uh, Brett Wright and myself, until next time, you've got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. Know when to walk away and know when to run. Brett, you never want to count your money while you're sitting at the table because, and again, I have this on very good authority, there will be time enough for counting once the dealing is done.